0: Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be here with you today. Uh, We are nearing the end of August, nearing the end of summer. It's hard to believe. Take a deep breath, everyone. Lisa, thank you so much uh, for your words. They were encouraging. Uh, What a testimony, and it's so good to have you here uh, with us today. Welcome. Welcome. We're continuing in our study as we've had over the last number of weeks in seven habits of a healthy Christian community. And we've looked at a number of different habits, that each of them falling on the trellis that we use to kind of outline our ministry priorities here at Calvary Monument Bible Church. There's a number of considerations that we're keeping in mind as we work through this series together. But uh, I was so encouraged last week... By Pastor Tom's timely words. And there were some things that he said in his message last week that I thought, wow, they are very applicable to where we are going and what we are studying today. Today, we are moving into the habit of a healthy Christian community that's oriented around studying conscientiously. And if you remember back to last week, there was a verse that Pastor Tom used. In fact, it was the primary verse for his message from the book of Jeremiah. The Lord said to his people, you are standing at the crossroads. So consider your paths. Ask where the old reliable paths are. Ask where the path is that leads to blessing and follow it. If you do, you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not Follow it. And as I was reflecting on this verse and reminiscing on it uh, in the course of the week, as often happens when I, I hear a message on Sunday, I kept coming back to Jesus' powerful and timeless words in John chapter 14. As we stand at our crossroads in our current cultural, historical moment, we might ask, Where is the pathway? What is the way? And then in the Gospels, we discover that we're not alone in asking those questions. In John chapter 14, Jesus' disciple Thomas asked, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And we all remember Jesus' response, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've known me, you will know my Father too. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. The ancient paths, the old paths, the reliable paths, available for us now, even today. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And life with Jesus is good, I hope that we've been experiencing that and seeing that together as a community over the last number of weeks, but it is also not a guarantee of comfortable and easy living here on earth. Lisa just mentioned that a little bit in her testimony. Jesus' earliest and closest disciples, they discovered this reality very shortly after Jesus' death. And in their difficulty and discomfort of spreading the gospel throughout the world, not only could the earliest disciples cling to the person of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but also they could be guided by a testament to the goodness and faithfulness, the person and the work of God. And so today we turn our attention to the habit of conscientious study. It's a vital habit for the flourishing of the Christian faith community today. Now, when my children were younger, and I had, I had an event this week that kind of caught me a little bit off guard. Uh, Brighton's a sophomore this year, and he had his first high school football game Friday night. And I, I saw him after the game, and I thought, Lord, how did you do this? <laughs> In a blink. In a blink, friends, I remember that little boy sitting on my knee in his bedroom and reading Sandra Boynton books to him. Anybody know Muba La La La? Right? Not just that one, but there was the pajama book. Oh, we loved the pajama book. There was something about those books when you'd get them out. For me, when I was growing up, it was golden books, Anybody remember the little engine that could, right? Or my all time favorite, the monster at the end of this book. It was a Sesame Street book, and the monster was Grover. And guess what? No matter how many times mom read it to me on her knee, I still couldn't wait to get to the monster at the end of the book. Couldn't wait. Same monster every time, but there was just something about it. For my children, it was the Sandra Boynton books and others over the years. And there was something about those books and that excitement that just changed the nature of our children as they sat on our laps and we pulled out that favorite book and you'd see them light up because they were so excited and as you read it to them over and over and over again, as a parent, you came to know the sections where they were going to giggle. They were going to laugh and they were going to enjoy it. And it just made you light up as you read to them, whether you're a grandparent, a parent, an aunt, or an uncle. There's something about words in books that are powerful, motivating, provocative, moving. It's amazing. And somewhere in the course of time when we're very young and all the way through to we're very old, we get introduced to the only living book, the only active book, the all-powerful book. And some of you remember the stories as a child growing up in Sunday school and the teachers that you had. I remember Bill Horst. And he would tell us these stories in class and we would sit and just, oh man, what's going to happen to Daniel? He's got lions all around him. What's going to happen? Or David and Goliath, you could hear it over and over how many times in Sunday school, right? Every Sunday school teacher in here knows that's the fallback. When you get called on Saturday night and we need a sub, okay, David and Goliath tomorrow. It doesn't matter. It never gets old. The Bible is living. It's active. It's powerful. And its words are amazingly transformative. And we desire to be a community committed to the study of God's word because of that. And so today we seek to further explore and to answer two important questions that are going to come through as we look at the beginning and and early in the book of Acts. First, in what ways did the Spirit work through the early church leaders' knowledge and application of God's word to establish the first Christian churches? And then second, how might the Holy Spirit work through the time invested in the study and application of the Bible to form and fuel his church for effectiveness today? So our first number of weeks in this series we've gleaned from the example of Jesus, but today we are going to turn our attention to the example of his earliest followers, the leaders of the first Christian house churches in the world The disciples of Jesus. What words guided and fueled the ministry of the early church leaders? Who was the person that they most closely studied and followed? And how might their example guide the direction of our study today? If you have your Bibles, you're going to take and turn to Acts chapter 4. Now we're going to work our way up to Acts chapter 4. But Acts chapter 4 is our primary text for today. And before we begin to break down the book of Acts... Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, we know that it is a beautiful gift that you have left for us. That your spirit somehow, in supernatural, miraculous ways, works through to transform us. Many of us in this room, Lord, all of us, have in one way or another, been powerfully impacted and influenced by the testimony of your word and its power. Your word tells us that it's through the words of this book somehow that you accomplish the power of salvation. The gospel is good news. And we don't know, Lord, exactly the nature of how you use it, but we know that it's living, it's active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we thank you. We thank you for leaving us with this testament, this testament of who you are, your faithfulness throughout history. We thank you that we have an anchor that we can hold to when times are difficult and tough. We thank you that we have a source of truth that's reliable. And Father, we want to give you glory for how you work through it. So guide our study today. Open our minds and hearts to understand more about your word, and how you work through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we open the book of Acts, at the beginning of this book, this is a book that was composed by Jesus' disciple, Luke. And what we find in the beginning chapters is what appears as a fragile nucleus of many of the remaining followers of Jesus. If you remember the the image, they're, they're huddled together in a room. With little direction or understanding regarding what to do next, they, they'd been given a commission by Jesus, a call to go into the, all of the world. It was a task that seemed both incredibly daunting and also realistically impossible. Where were they even to start? And surrounding them in the context where they were planted was a diverse people. They were situated among one of the major trade routes of their day, and all around them, many different people groups were represented within their communities, many different languages, many different customs, religions, traditions. And this was exactly how God had planned it. As he was establishing the church, God was bringing restoration to a broken world. We see this as evidenced in the Pentecost. You remember this early in the book of Acts, the Pentecost and these early church leaders, they're given the gift of languages. And it's very interesting that something that was once used by God in Genesis to confuse and to scatter people, that God was now using to call a people unto himself from every nation, tribe, and language. And we cannot overstate the monumental importance of Pentecost for the church. And it was amazing. Jesus' disciples, they're both literally and figuratively fired up as tongues of fire come down and rest upon their heads. And then the second part of Acts chapter 2, Peter begins to preach and he's drawing on words from the Old Testament. Peter is using the Bible as he preaches. He's drawing from Joel, he's drawing from the Psalms. And his call is a call to repentance, to water baptism, to see people forgiven of their sins, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, which was given as a promise at the moment. Of salvation. And the scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people, 3,000, can you imagine? 3,000 were added to the church on that day alone. And over time, many more began to come and to hear and to see and to follow. And perhaps here, wouldn't it be nice to say, and that was the end, and they lived happily ever after. And the church began to grow, and everything was good and flourishing, and people were treated kindly and nicely all the time. But in the Roman Empire, and under the rule of the Roman Caesar, this would not be the case. There was great persecution. And as chapter 3 of Acts opens, Peter and John are moving up to the temple at the time of of prayer. It's about three in the afternoon. Now, we can imagine persecution coming from the Roman Caesar and the leaders, but what about from the temple leaders? It was the temple where Jesus often found himself in trouble with the religious leaders, and here, as we're going to see for the disciples of Jesus, it would be no different so as they enter the temple, Peter and John heal a lame man. And following the healing, the people are astounded and they rush to see what's going on. And so Peter again seizes on the opportunity to preach and teach. His his words are a strong indictment against the religious establishment that ruled over Judaism. And it's practice within the temple. And it's good for us to see and to hear these words to understand the profound effect they'd have. Look back to chapter 3. Look back at verses 12 to 15. It'll be on the screen. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us if we've made this man walk by our own power or piety? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our forefathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate after he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked that a man who was a murderer be released to you. You killed the originator of life whom God raised from the dead. To this fact, we are witnesses. If you continue on through chapter 3, Peter goes on to quote from Torah. And he's citing passages in both Deuteronomy and Genesis. Once again, Peter preaching, drawing from the powerful, provocative words of the Old Testament. Showing the people how the law had prepared them for Jesus, the very one that they had rejected. And as we enter chapter 4 today, you might imagine... The religious leaders are not very happy with Peter and with John. So open to chapter 4, and let's read verses 1 to 13 in chapter 4 of Acts. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them. And put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, some names you might recognize, and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are to be examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Peter and John's powerful message is moving various groups of people to action within this passage. First, there's the priest and the commander of the temple guard and the Sadducees. And the text tells us that they're angry because Peter and John were teaching the people about Jesus and they were affirming the resurrection of the dead. Now, it was the Sadducees of that time. We may not realize that the Sadducees and Pharisees were different. But it was the Sadducees in that day who held firmly to a very strict, rigid, and literal interpretation of the Old Testament law. In their minds, any attempt to deviate from this strictly literal interpretation was a deviation from what God had intended to establish in the giving of his Torah. So literal were they in their interpretation of Torah that they literally missed and overlooked Jesus, the very one who the law, the prophets, and writings literally foretold of. And as Levitical priests, the Sadducees believed that the Messianic Age began with the heroes of the Maccabean Revolt. It was a revolt against the Roman Empire that had taken place almost 200 years prior to the coming of Christ. They firmly rejected the concept of a bodily resurrection. The Sadducees would have considered Paul or Peter and John as apostates of true Judaism. They made up much of the ruling council of what was known of the Sanhedrin in that day. They were controlling and governing much of what was happening within Judaism in the temple at that time. And as the leaders of the temple, the Sadducees controlled and employed a temple guard. Now imagine coming to church on Sunday and and your elders and pastors employing guards in the foyer. You might not be too happy. Right? I hope you wouldn't be too happy. Hopefully we never get to a place in this country where we need to do that. But nonetheless, here was the situation. It was a type of police force that were to keep things in check within the temple. Make sure nothing was getting out of hand. And in their minds, in the minds of the Sadducees, Peter and John were usurping their authority as the teachers and interpreters of the law. They were dangerous, false teachers who needed to be dealt with swiftly lest we have another issue like they had had with Jesus on their hands again. And so Peter and John are seized by the temple guards. They're thrown into prison. But isn't it amazing in the text? While this is taking place, there's another group of people there, aren't there? It's amazing. Verse 4, not just the guards, the Sadducees, the priests, but the Spirit was working. Through the preaching and the teaching of God's word. And the gospel, the good news was taking root and it was bearing fruit. Look at verse 4. But many of those who had listened to the message believed and the number came to about 5,000. So 3,000 earlier in the book of Acts, 5,000 here, 8,000 people in the early church coming to believe. In Jesus Christ and just imagine the effect that the reception of this message began to have within the Jewish community it was shaking the foundations of the Jewish community and its leadership the message of the cross as the Bible says is foolishness to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved it is the power of God a crucified Messiah friends was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to many Gentiles but to those who are called both Jews and Gentiles Messiah was and Messiah is the power and the wisdom of God and we can watch as the earliest disciples of Jesus they do not hesitate to use the scriptures that were available to them remember they didn't have the New Testament As we do today. So in their preaching, what were they relying on to point people to Jesus? They were relying on the Old Testament and they were using it. They didn't abandon it. His disciples used the Old Testament to point people to Jesus. And even after finding themselves in prison, as the Spirit was working within them, Peter and John found themselves empowered to continually... And boldly proclaim the good news. Verse 5 in our text invites us to see that there's this continual effect that the message was having on the leaders of the temple. Everyone's coming together and trying to decide, what are we going to do with these people? And and these are men that are coming together with blood on their hands. And isn't it interesting that the same questions that they want to ask Peter and John, they had previously asked of Jesus. Look at verse 7. After making Peter and John stand in their midst, they began to inquire. You remember the same question they asked of Jesus? By what power or by what name did you do this? By whose power or by whose name did Peter and John heal the man who was lame? And the answer to that question, ironically, was indwelling both Peter and John. And is indwelling all disciples of Jesus today. And Luke is very particular to make sure we understand that while Peter responds, he is speaking as one who is full of the Holy Spirit. And the authority that Peter speaks with here in this text, it emulates the exact authority with which Jesus had spoken and taught by when he was on earth. Multiple times in the Gospels we read this statement. I've put two up here, but it occurs many, many times. As Jesus would teach, the people were amazed because he teached as one who had authority. And full of the Spirit, speaking the truth of God's word to the people, Peter is now speaking in the same manner. And people are amazed and astounded with the authority that he's speaking with. His words are full, they're powerful, they're authoritative. We need to look at them again. Look at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel... That by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. Friends, his answer, Peter's answer to this question is the gospel. It's good news. It's even good news for the people who are questioning them. It's good news for those who had had them thrown into prison. It's good news for the people who hated Jesus and rejected him. Even the people who had a part of putting him on the cross, it is still good news for them. The bad news was that the religious establishment, including the Sadducees, had rejected Jesus. But the marvelously hope-filled good news was that if they believed today, when Peter and John were preaching to them, if they believed today, they could still be saved by the very stone they had rejected. Now friends, who are the people in your lives who've rejected Jesus over and over and over again. Who are the people. Who have said those hard words to you. Don't come in here pushing your religion on me anymore. Who are the people in your life. Who have said. I don't want to hear. About your beliefs anymore. There's good news for them. There's good news. Hope filled. Life Giving news that a person could be turned away from God and reject Him, but in a moment He could reach down by His power, by the power of the gospel, He could reach down and He could turn a stone cold heart into moldable clay and transform a life. In this moment, this was exactly what the Sadducees needed to hear. And today, friends, for those in our lives who have not yet believed, it is still this message they need to hear. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And the good news is Jesus is mighty to save us. He came... He was the Messiah as promised by God. He was crucified. God raised him from the dead. And he can raise up those who believe as well. And if we've not yet believed, then we live in rejection of the Messiah. In many ways, if we've not yet believed, we are like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But if we believe as evidenced in repenting and confessing of our sins, turning to God and calling out to Jesus for salvation, then Jesus will save us. He will put us right with God. We don't do the work, friends. We don't do the work. He does it. And then he raises us up together with him. We consider this for those of us who are here today watching online in this building. Have you ever... Reflected on the reality that you are indwelt by the same exact Holy Spirit that was filling and indwelling Peter and John in this testimony in Acts chapter 4. That Spirit that inspired boldness and courage in their lives, in their ministry, and in their heart. That same Spirit is alive and active within every true disciple of Jesus today. There's hope, there's destiny, there's purpose. What wonderful life-giving news we have to share with people. We don't have to live as those without hope. We don't have to live as those without purpose. We don't have to live as someone without a family. We don't have to live as somebody who's lonely. God is with us. He's for us. He's able to save us. There is no other message that could be more important for us to study, apply, and practice, practice too, today than the message of the gospel. But we cannot practice a message that we do not understand or comprehend, and the power of the gospel is not available to those who have not yet believed. But for those who have believed, they've been given the right to be called a son and a daughter of the living God. And so I would ask today, is this your most cherished title, daughter or son of God? Is it more important to you than your job title, your social standing, your economic status, political alignment, academic achievement, or denominational affiliation? Child of the living God. Child of the living God. And this message that we've been given is powerful. It's it's wonder working and it's enough to deserve a lifetime of study and application. Somebody said to me the other week that they had been reading a passage their whole lives and it just so happened that the Lord showed them something in it that they had never seen before. And I said, that's the testimony of the living, active word that we have been given to read and to study and to apply. And you know what's amazing? As we get to the end of the text this morning, in verse 13, that, that these words, they're not just stale words on a page. Sometimes with a book, you know, like Golden Books or Sandra Boynton Books, they're fun, they're exciting, But those words, they're not living, active, powerful, life-changing. They're not gospel. And you know, uh, these black and white kind of words on the page here, they're great. uh, They're good. But they are words that have been personified in the person of Jesus as well. The message or the words that we've been given to study are so tightly woven into the person of Jesus that we simply cannot detach them from Him. The Bible tells us, teaches us, instructs us, and informs of us about who Jesus was and how He lived. Remember these words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by Him apart from Him. Not one thing was created that had been created. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines on the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. Out of the darkness, out of that very darkness, through the power of His Word, Jesus called forth his first disciples, and he spent the rest of his earthly ministry investing in them, training them, mentoring them, discipling them, teaching them. And what did he use to do it? The word. The word. And he'd show them how to use his word to carry out and carry on the mission that he would give them. And the beauty, friends, of the book of Acts, if you've never sat down to just read it all at once, do it. It's so good. The beauty of the book of Acts is the book of Acts is now showing us how they are doing it. They're doing it now. It was their turn and they were doing it. They're acting out the consequence of their belief. The reception of the gospel, the Holy Spirit is moving them and motivating them, and people are taking notice and coming to faith in Christ. And I love what the religious leaders observed in verse 13. What a beautiful compliment. I hope somebody tells me someday that, boy, you're really an uneducated and ordinary guy, but we can tell you've been with Jesus. Is there a better compliment? Then we could be given? I don't know if there is. I mean, this is amazing. The, the, the boldness and the authority that these men are preaching with and the conclusion that the religious leaders come to with all these words. Those are pretty ordinary and uneducated guys, but man, they must have, they must have been with Jesus. Beautiful. It reminds me that the words, we don't have to have doctor degrees to study this book, Amen. These words are available to us. These words are available to people in countries that don't even have this book yet translated in their own language. Yet God is still working through workers who are helping them read and understand it as they translate the language. God works through his word and the power of it. Being with Jesus in a community that fostered and cultivated close personal relationships and real life change, empowered and emboldened the early church leaders to take his message and his example and to share it with the world. Friends, this is powerful. This is a powerful, powerful tool we've been given. And when we open the pages of Scripture to read, memorize, study, and apply them, we hold a book that's full of life And full of mystery. It's a testament of God. The God of the universe. As revealed in the person of Jesus. And borne along by the Holy Spirit. The God who continues to make him known today. Through the preaching, teaching, hearing, and believing on his word. So how might the Holy Spirit work through the time we invest in the study and application of the Bible. To form and fuel his church for effectiveness today and I want to make a few observations from our text this morning. First, the Bible gives the church an anchor to hold firm in shifting tides so that we're not tossed about by the anxiety and the fear of our current cultural And historical moment. The disciples were scared friends. They're in a room huddled together. They don't know what to do or where to go. But when they go out. And when they begin to lead. And teach and preach. What are they using? The word. Man this word. It's so much more powerful. Than our national news media. It's so much more powerful. Than any book we can study in any university. It gives us what we need. The Spirit works through it to apply to each believer as she or he studies what we need when we need it. So that we can live effectively today. This is our current historical cultural moment that we've been given today. God has planted us here with purpose, not by accident. His word is what we are to use to help us move and to guide us in the world as we live. Second, the Bible gives us, the church, our primary content so that we can serve our communities as salt and light that Jesus has called us to be. This is what we're to be doing today. How do we know how we are to be living as salt and light in the world today? The Bible teaches us. It instructs us. There are many passages. Our next series we're going to begin in a few weeks. We're going to be going through the book of Philippians. Philippians is a book that teaches us how to live with joy in a very difficult world, in very difficult circumstances. So here in the Bible, we have an entire document given to us by God that teaches us how we can serve our communities as the salt and light that God has called us to be. But then finally, and perhaps most importantly, the Bible gives the church the greatest and most powerful gospel ever known in human history. There is no news that is greater news than the news of the gospel. Amen? It is the greatest news in the world, both for the believing and for the not yet believing. And in the pages of the gospel, we can find out how we can be living in this world with great peace, great hope, great joy, great thankfulness, great faith, and great love, regardless of our circumstances. Friends, I, over, over the course of, of my life, there have been a few moments that I can point to Where God has spoken through his word in my life in such a way that has transformed the very trajectory or course of where I was going and redirected me in a completely different way. And that is his spirit at work through the study of his word. And as a Christian community, I just believe if we commit ourselves to studying, applying, practicing, living the scriptures as they're presented that this would be a healthy habit for us, one that God would mightily use and work through as he forms us into the image of Christ. Let's pray as our team comes. Father, thank you for your word. What a testimony we've been given. Powerful words. And we thank you today, particularly for the example of our early church leaders, Peter, John, later on it would be Paul. They were so mindful of infusing the pieces of your word that they had into every aspect of their teaching. Lord, it's so encouraging for us to go into Paul's letters and to see where he's pulling directly from Old Testament scriptures in his writing. Your word was so near to their hearts and their minds, it influenced the very course and direction of their ministries. And Father, we want the same to be true as us, both corporately and individually today. As a church, corporately, we want your word to be guiding, directing, and moving the the very course of everything we do here at CNBC. But as individuals, Father, we need your word to help move us, motivate us, and encourage us it needs to be near to our hearts and our minds. And we're thankful for the ministries that you've given CMBC that help embed your word in our hearts and our minds. I think of our Awana ministries and our Sunday school ministries. I think of our Bible memorization uh, quizzing ministries. Lord, there are so many different ways. Our adult fellowships and scripture memory. Father, we want to be hearers and doers of your word. And we need your help Uh, We ask, Lord, that your word uh, would cause us to live with the same kind of courage, boldness that the early disciples lived with. Help us to be effective as salt and light in the communities that you've planted us in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.